So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 8th chapter, the 40th through the 42nd verses, and then skipping down to the 49th through the 56th verses. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, or Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, jumping down to the 49th verse. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for illumination. Oh, dear Lord, this text is too big for me. It is beyond us. And so I ask that you would give me the words and clarity in talking about some of the core issues of Christianity and some of the the giant topics that are so essential that we understand. If we're going to understand anything about what has happened to us and and who saves who (laughs) and, and how much of a part of it we actually are able to offer. So Lord, I just pray that you will give me the words this morning, make things that have been muddled Um, so completely in the evangelical church today, give me clarity so that I can can spell them out exactly as they are spelled out here in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation that is so hopeless that you feel absolutely powerless to do anything about it? I know that those of us who have been trapped in an addiction at any time in your lives, you, you, you have an idea of what I'm talking about, where you feel that you're trapped by something that is just far greater than you are, and you can't work your way out of it. Well, there's a variety of ways that people get out of addictions, but I think that there are two constants that really play in it. First of all, there has to be some power over the addiction, over whatever substance is being abused. There has has to be a power, either a willpower or a power from a program, a power from someplace else. But power has to be exercised over that. And then there has to be the inclination. If one or the other is there, or missing, I'm sorry, one or the other is missing, it's just simply not going to happen. If you have the power or the willpower, but not the inclination, you're not going to beat that addiction. If you have the inclination, but no power, by the same token, you're not going to be able to work your way out of that. Now, 
hopefully most of you would say to me, well, that's all well and good, but I've not had an addiction, so how does this uh, apply to me? Well, in that case, let me have your imagination, and let's go to the scripture that we've been studying over the last couple of weeks. Let me just ask you to imagine that you are, for instance, that that demoniac, that, that man who is overwhelmed by a multitude of demons and, and they not only have his power, but they have his will. There's no way that he can work his way out of that. So both his will, his inclination, and his power are completely overwhelmed. Or that woman who, who had a flow of blood and her disease was beyond any of the medical knowledge of her day. Now, she had the inclination. She, I mean, she wanted to be healed, but she had no power. That No one could do it. So that led her into superstition and desperation and fear and doubt. And we're going to see this morning a, a, a little girl who has no power or inclination at all. Now, her father has an inclination, wants to save her, but doesn't have the power to do so. And once again, you could say to me, well, I don't have an addiction. I'm not possessed by a demon. I don't have a flow of blood and and I'm perfectly alive. So once again, how does this relate to me? Well, brothers and sisters, when you look at this from a metaphoric view and you start talking about our state in our fallen state as as unredeemed sinful people, it it has everything to do with you because you are just as as completely in that absolutely hopeless situation as, as any of the people that we have studied. And first of all, you don't have the power to save yourself. You don't have the power to achieve righteousness. You don't have the power to purify, to cleanse yourself. You don't have the power to rake up yourself spiritually from the dead. Even as Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He goes on to say that we are or were at that time children of wrath. (laughs) There's no power involved with a dead person who's dead spiritually. You have no power whatsoever to overcome What is against you and what makes it worse is you don't even have the inclination. We've read it many times here. John says this, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Don't patronize yourself by saying you don't do wicked things in the eyes of a perfectly holy God. We've all done wicked things even this morning on our way to church. So, I mean, this applies to all of us. Not only do we not have the power to help ourselves, we don't even have the inclination. And so, therefore, we are absolutely, in a spiritual sense, hopeless. And so, therefore, our only hope is to find someone who has not only the power, but the inclination to save us. And that someone, brothers and sisters, is our Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the son of the most high God. And he has the power and inclination to save us. And that's what our discussion is going to be about this morning. Now, we're going to do quite a bit of reminiscing, actually, as we go through our text. We're going to go back into Luke and and see the themes that Luke has developed. But I think you might have already picked out that what has happened recently is particularly important because 
what we get in these last three, what I call cameo healings. Cameo healings are healings that have a name or a person or a, a detail. It's not that Jesus healed everybody in town. That's sort of a broad healing. But when we get the details of all these different healings, uh, I'm just referring to them as cameo. And the last three that we have had, if you put them together, you get this marvelous picture of the gospel. I, I mean, well, actually going back a little bit, even to the crossing of the of the sea when we saw Jesus exercise power and authority over the very elements of creation and and bolstering the disciples faith in the process and then when we got over to the other side and we studied that, that demoniac infested with multiple demons and we looked at him running around the tombs screaming like a banshee with no clothes on and unfortunately that's us in a spiritual sense that, that's a picture of who we are and then we saw Jesus cast the demons out and heal the man, clothe him in a beautiful picture of, of the gospel and then last week, we, we saw the, the woman with the flow of blood. And we noticed that even though she had a modicum of faith, that faith wasn't enough because it was mixed with desperation, superstition, fear, and doubt. We're going to see the same thing in Jairus this morning. The same sort of a, of a flow is going to occur here. But once again, Jesus was the one who had, in each instance, the power and the inclination to heal and, and, and one other thing that's been running through these is the whole issue of faith. And once again, we're going to be confronted with a statement where Jesus tells this man to believe. And then, and, and then his daughter will be well. So we've got to ask ourselves, to what degree does his faith enter into this little girl's resurrection? So all of these things are going to kind of make their way into our discussion this morning. Now, as I said earlier, we have a, a, a story within a story. Uh, we, we have a wrapper that wraps around the story we saw last week about the woman with the flow of blood. So we need to go back to the 40th verse. We need to introduce Jairus so that we know who he is. And then we will jump to the 49th verse, bypassing the woman altogether. We'll make reference to her, but we're not going to restudy her this morning. So let's start there in the 40th verse. And I'll bring this, um, uh, move through it so we can get to um, the healing of this girl, the resurrection of the girl. Now, when Jesus returned, returned from the other side, from the gathering demoniac, when he returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Now, if we put ourselves back into the time frame of this, the very last thing that happened was that Jesus had healed this man, thrown the demons out, they'd gone into the pigs. The townspeople came out. So the crowd came out and they begged Jesus to leave. We don't need you here. We prefer the demon, you know, the demon possessed man, because we don't need you here interrupting our status quo. So when he comes back over to the other side, he's met by a quite different crowd, a crowd that welcomes him and that had been waiting for him with great expectation. But I wonder just how different the crowd actually was. Because after all, this is Capernaum. 
And, and, and were they waiting for him so that they could sit at his feet like the demoniac had done after he had been healed and have a desire to follow him and to believe in him and to be his disciples? Do you think that was the reason they were waiting for him? Or do you think it was because they wanted to be entertained? Because their entertainer had left and they were anxious for him to come back because they, they, they want to see another miracle. Well, I, I think it's the latter. And, and I tell you, one of the reasons I think that is because of, of, of what Jesus says to Capernaum later. He's going to say it in Luke, but it's a little bit more detailed in Matthew. This is what he says. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So in other words, Capernaum is, 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 is seen as a place of unbelief. Now, it doesn't mean that they didn't welcome Jesus. They really interested in seeing him work some miracles, but there wasn't a high level of belief there. Now, the reason this is important, and the reason I want you to see this is because later on we're going to talk about Jairus' faith and where it came from and what was the quantity and quality of that faith. And I want you to remember that he's part of this crowd. He's a citizen of Capernaum. And, and, and Capernaum is known for the fact that they're not real believers in Jesus Christ. So we hear or we learn or we meet Jairus or Jairus in the next verse, verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus who was ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. Now, I don't know if you recognize the irony there, but this is a very uh, extraordinary scene. Because this man, now of course, he is one of the most respected men in the entire town of Capernaum. Because he's ruler of the synagogue. Now, we just left the demon, the demon guy, the, the, probably the lowest you can possibly get from a spooky Gentile graveyard. And now we've gone to the, the, the top of the social status, the ruler of the synagogue. Now, the ruler of the synagogue um, was sort of the religious policeman of the town. Let me read to you what John Stott says in his commentary about him. He says, the ruler of the synagogue was entrusted by the elders of the community with general oversight of the synagogue and, important, orthodoxy of teaching. So in other words, he is the watchdog. He is supposed to identify heretics and blasphemers and to deal with them accordingly. Well, what have they already accused Jesus of being? A heretic and a blasphemer. So what's this man doing falling down at his feet? Um, Stock goes on and says he's in, he has included the building maintenance and security, procuring of scrolls for scripture reading, and arranging of Sabbath worship by designating scripture readers, prayers, and preachers. Ordinarily, a synagogue had only one ruler. So I just, I just want you to, to, to see this. That this man is more than likely one of the main protagonists or antagonists, sorry, not protagonists, but antagonists of Jesus, standing against him, calling uh, uh, problems with him. In fact, if you remember that story that we already have learned about the man with a withered hand, 
And more than likely, it's not doesn't say it, but we're almost positive that it is the synagogue in Capernaum. And they set Jesus up because they want to catch him at doing a healing in, on, on the Sabbath. Well, guess who's in charge of all of that? <laughs> Jairus, th- this guy. I mean, I mean, he would have been so involved with that. And then what we read is that when Jesus healed the man, they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, this man comes, and almost as soon as Jesus lands, he comes and accosts him almost exactly the way that the demon-possessed man accosted them as soon as he landed on the other side. And he throws himself at Jesus' feet. When was the last time we saw somebody throw themselves at Jesus' feet? It was the demon-possessed man when the demons recognized it was Jesus. So here's my point. The man who throws himself at Jesus' feet is not doing so as the ruler of the synagogue. He is doing so as a desperate, panicked father whose daughter is at the very door of death. In fact, Mark says that. Luke tells us that in the next verse, 42. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So it's not as ruler of the synagogue. It's, I mean, he's terribly conflicted here. But as a father, his daughter's dying. And when the chips are down out of desperation, very similar to what the woman did, very, she was desperate, threw himself down at the feet of Jesus and begs him to follow him to his house, to lay hands on his daughter and to heal her. And I want you to notice that just as Jesus was inclined to heal the demoniac. He's inclined to follow this man to his house and heal him. No matter whether it's the bottom of the, of the ladder or the top of the ladder, Jesus is inclined to heal, to use his power for the glory of God. Well, we also learned last week that on the way, they got delayed. At the end of that 42nd verse, Um, As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. If you remember, that word meant choked. And it was a combination of the narrow streets of Capernaum and this crowd that was waiting for him in expectation. But now, for goodness sakes, you've had the ruler of the synagogue fall down in front of him in public display of that submission and begged him to come and heal his daughter because his daughter's about to die. So... Boy, I tell you what, people have come from all over the town. They can't wait to see what's going to happen. And so we know what happened is they choked the streets and Jesus and Jairus could not get through. Providentially, two things occurred as a result. Last week, we saw that the woman had an opportunity to sneak up behind Jesus and touch him. But also providentially, that delay is going to cause the death of the little girl which is, again, all part of God's plan and for his glory, the delay that is actually happening. By the way, I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we go through this, the parallel with John 11 and the resurrection of Lazarus. There you saw a delay as well. Jesus on purpose delaying going to to heal Lazarus so that it could be for the glory of God. So with that said... Let's jump down to the 49th verse. We're going to skip the whole, you know, the, the, the whole discussion of the woman. And we're going to go straight to where the narrative about Jairus continues. 
While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. So, I mean, this flows from one to the next. Jesus is still in a conversation concerning the woman who has fallen on her face before before Jesus. And while this is going on, a messenger, could be a servant, it could be a family member, someone from from Jairus' house comes and says, don't need to worry about bringing the... The, the teacher anymore, your, your daughter has already died. Not very diplomatic, whoever it was, kind of just sort of blurts it out. And, but, but he expresses, I think, what is the, the, the idea of most people, that if Jesus could have gotten there, if he could have arrived while the little girl was still alive, then maybe he could have worked his magic over her. But no one, no one brings the lifeless back to life again. That that just doesn't happen. And and in fact, another parallel with the story of Lazarus, because if, if if you look what Martha said, Martha said, when Jesus arrived, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Jesus says, well, guess what? You're going to see something even greater than just taking care of, uh, of, uh, of, of, a, of an illness, the resurrection from the dead. But I want to step out of Luke just a moment here because we're getting ready to talk about Jairus' faith, all right? And, and, and I, I, I want us to give Matthew's take on this. Matthew has a, a much abbreviated version of this. But he says something that is really significant and probably happens right here. After the person comes and tells him, forget it, your daughter has died. Matthew says that he turns to Jesus and says, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, that's significant because that's faith. The the man has the modicum of faith. We don't want to take that away from him. We're going to try to figure out what kind of faith he has and how much of an impact that faith had on the resurrection of his daughter. But however you want to slice it, the man had enough faith to go fall down before Jesus in the public and make a public spectacle of himself. And now, after the daughter has died, he has enough faith to say, Jesus... If you lay your hands on her, you can resurrect her. More than likely, he heard about the event that happened in Nain. Remember that? The corpse of Nain that Jesus brought the man on the way to the grave back from the dead. Well, he more than likely heard about that and was thinking to himself that if you could do it for him, perhaps you can do it for my daughter. Well, anyway... Look at Jesus' response in the 50th verse. But Jesus, on hearing this, Jesus overheard that conversation, Mark tells us. Upon hearing that, um, he answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. What on earth does Jesus mean by that? What kind of a statement has he just made to Jairus. Well, let's analyze it a little bit more closely. First of all, notice that he says, don't fear. 
And if you were here last week, you know that I took you back and I showed you that Luke has really been driving this whole concept of fear home with us. We had the fear of the disciples when they thought they were perishing. We had the fear that replaced that when they saw the holy Jesus calm the winds and the waves. We saw the fear of the, dem- of the demons when they thought Jesus was going to throw them into the abyss. We saw the fear of the townspeople because the supernatural had disturbed their, their status quo. We saw the fear of the woman with a flow falling at Jesus' feet because she was afraid that, um, because she had been found out. She had been busted, if you will. And now Jesus is telling Jairus, don't be afraid. Obviously, the only reason you say that is because there was an obvious fear on, on that man's face. So here's what I want you to see. The last time we saw someone fall on his face before Jesus They were falling on their face out of fear. It was the demons afraid of being cast into the um, abyss. The next time after this that we see somebody fall on their face before Jesus, it's the woman falling on her face in fear that she had been found out. So I think that we can assume that even though we are seeing a little bit of faith, a modicum of faith here in Jairus, I think that it is faith that is mingled with desperation Probably superstition, just like the woman, this man has probably had every physician in town try to heal his daughter being a prominent person. So probably some of those superstitious things that the healers did and fear. Okay, so the the faith, we've got to see it in that context. But then Jesus says to the man, just believe, only believe and your daughter will be healed. So what is Jesus saying to the man? Here's the question that we've got, to, we've got to answer. Is Jesus saying to this man, if you believe, your daughter will be healed or resurrected. If you don't believe, she will not be resurrected. Now, pretty much most of evangelical America would tell you that it's up to you. It depends on whether you believe or not believe on whether or not something is going to happen. And so what my question is, is how much of a part did Jairus's belief actually have on the resurrection of his daughter? Well, here's something I think we should put into the context of the gospel of Luke. Because we have seen a string of cameo healings and miracles. And and, and we've analyzed each one of them as we have come across them for the nature of the faith of the people who are involved. If you remember, there was a demoniac, a man with a demon who was healed by Jesus in the synagogue at Capernaum. Later on that very same day, he healed Peter's mother-in-law who was at death's door with a fever from probably malaria. Then he healed the the servant of a centurion um, without even having to go there. Um, He healed a leper along the way who needed to be cleansed of that disease. He later healed a man with a deformed hand, once again in the synagogue. He healed a paraplegic who had to be carried on a litter by his friends and, 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 and put down through the roof. He, he healed or resurrected the son of a mother who had lost her only son and was actually on the way to the grave. He stopped the wind and the waves in the middle of a storm to abate the fear of his disciples. He 
in an extraordinary exorcism, he cast out potentially thousands of demons from the man across the way. He healed the woman with a flow of blood without in, in that, that very strange situation that we talked about last week where it was the, 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 the human Jesus and the divine Jesus that were both being uh, involved with that. And, and now there's this healing, uh, this resurrection of the girl. Now, here's what I want you to see, and this is the reason I'm listing all of those. We can, when we went through each one of them, we, we, we analyzed the faith, the faith that was necessary or faith part of that. Some of these healings had faith, or at least a modicum of faith. In other words, the leper, remember what he said to Jesus? He says, if you will, you can cleanse me. Uh, um, uh, 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 the, the centurion, Jesus marveled at his faith because he says, you don't even have to come to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Uh, okay. The friends of the paraplegic who, who, who lowered him down from the roof and went to great expense or, or great extents to have him healed. And to a degree, even the woman with the flow of blood, even though we saw that she had uh, faith mingled with superstition, desperation, and fear. So we have seen some of these healings have a degree of faith, but then there have been others with no faith from anyone. Peter's mother-in-law, she was at death's door with a high fever and delirious. She, she, she didn't have any, any true faith. None, neither one of the men infested with demons, whether it was the man in the synagogue at Capernaum or the man on the other side of the lake, none of them, they had no faith whatsoever and Jesus healed them. Okay, um, what, what about the, um, the man with the withered hand? There was no indication that he had any faith. And of course, the corpse of Nain, the man's dead and on his way to the grave. So he had absolutely no faith. So what, here's my point. Now, we looked at each one of those and we analyzed whether or not the faith of the people involved was the kind of faith that moved mountains. Was it the kind of faith that actually was the faith that did the healing? And in each one of them, the answer was no. There was only one person who did the healing, who had both the power and the inclination to heal, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of them was the sovereign work of Jesus. And so let's go back to Jairus, and let's ask that question again. How much faith does Jairus have? When Jesus says, okay, you know, just believe... And your daughter will be well. Well, what was the quantity of that faith? Do you realize the position that Jesus has put this man in? It's, it's one thing to say, do you believe I can heal her? And, and for him to say yes. It's another thing for him to say, believe in me and your daughter will come back from the dead. No one comes back from the dead in that way. So Jairus needs the faith of Abraham. He needs the faith of Daniel. He needs that faith that is able to move mountains and throw them into the sea. And it is my contention, brothers and sisters, that he just doesn't have it. After all, he's a conflicted man. He's the head of the synagogue. He's probably been one of the men who have been an antagonist who is undermining Jesus' ministry. And the only reason that he has come to Jesus now is out of desperation and fear. So I don't believe that Jairus has the faith that is necessary for him to bring his daughter back from the dead. 
In other words, I think if it was up to Jairus, that she'd still be dead and you would have no miracle. Because I don't think that's what Jesus is saying to the man. I don't believe that he is saying that if you have enough faith that you can bring your daughter back from the dead. There's no one who brought that girl back from the dead but Jesus Christ. And in fact, if we go back through all of these things, every single healing that we have seen, whether it was the demoniac in the um, uh, synagogue, whether it was Peter's mother-in-law, whether it was the cleansing of the leopard, whether it's the centurion servant, whether it's the paraplegic, whether it is the miraculous catch to add another miracle to it, the resurrection of the corpse at Nain, the calming of the wind in the seas, the, the exorcism of the man across the way, and the stop of the flow of blood, every single one of those was done by the sovereign will and power of Jesus and Jesus alone. Luke's whole point in this gospel is for you to see that Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who has the power and the inclination to heal. And, 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 and even though faith is important, even though faith is a big part of it, and we need to have faith for salvation, it, it was not dependent upon their faith. That, that has been the teaching of Luke since the very beginning. So why does Jesus say to this man, only believe and your daughter will be made well? Well, Jesus is the one who's going to make the daughter well. But there's a reason that Jesus wants this man to believe. Let's go back to the sea. Let's go back to the storm. Remember, the disciples had enough faith to get into the boat and to make the trip to the other side, to follow Jesus to Gentile territory. They had enough faith. They left some guys on the shore who didn't, but they had enough. But what happened when the storm came? That Their faith began to waver because of circumstantial fear. It began to crush their faith. Okay, And so what happened when those men planted in the good soil came face to face with the holy when Jesus calmed the winds and the wave? What happened to their faith? It was increased. It was bolstered. Okay, It's part of their growth process. Their faith is growing because they're seeing the power and the glory of the one who has both the power and the inclination to work these miracles and to heal. I believe it's the same thing with Jairus. I believe it's exactly the same thing. He's got a little bit of faith. And Jesus is saying, you, you hold on to that faith because that faith is going to increase when you see what I'm about to do. Now, That is assuming that Jairus and hopefully his wife and hopefully this little girl are the seeds planted in the good soil that are going to grow and bear fruit. But I I think there's an indication that even though he has this conflict, this, this, it would make him a hypocrite if he was really believing in Jesus because he's the, he's the policeman that's supposed to be standing against him. And so therefore, I, I, I think that, that there could be a life change going on for Jairus and hopefully for his wife and for this little girl as well. Well, anyway, all of those are, um, I believe, the reason that Jesus said this. And, and in fact, again, a little bit of a, of a parallel with what we saw in the raising of Lazarus from the grave. Remember what Jesus said to Martha, that if you'll just believe you are going to see the glory of God You are going to see something that is going to take that faith and build it and increase it and make it more vital. Well, that's exactly what I think is happening with Jairus. And I think that's why he says what he says. Well, anyway, returning to the the, the text, let's see what happens next. 
um, in verse 51. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. Now, apparently, we'll get to the chaos that's going on in the house in a minute, but apparently they're all inside. And, and, and Mark or Matthew, I can't remember which one, says that Jesus threw them out. Okay, He throws all the mourners outside, so the chaos moves outside the house. And Jesus takes just these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and the mother and father. Well, the mother and father are obvious. But why Peter, James, and John? Why those three? And, and, and we're not going to answer that. I'm asking you a rhetorical question that I'm not going to answer. Um, because they become kind of the core group. They're the ones at the Transfiguration. They're the ones in, in the Garden of Gethsemane that were given special consideration. Maybe we'll get to that question a little bit in the after church. But the, um, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus took an exclusive group in there. And, and I believe there's a reason for that. And a reason that he threw the rest of them out. But we'll have to get that to that in the after church. Because I want to go ahead and move on and see what happens. Look in verse 52. And all were weeping and mourning for her. Now, you may ask yourself, who are these weepers and mourners? And what's going on here? And you can see that there was probably a good delay because the funeral is already in full swing by the time they reached Jairus' house. And, and this is kind of the way it was in those cultures. These mourners, they're, they're professionals. This is what they do. And more than likely because the little girl was so sick and so close to death that they had already been put on notice by Jairus before he even went to find Jesus. They were probably all waiting for this event to happen. Mark tells us that the people were weeping and wailing loudly Matthew tells us that the flute players and the crowd were making a great commotion. And this is very cultural. It's the way that they, they had funerals. They weren't somber and reverent like ours are so often, but, but sort of a raucous affair with an awful lot of weeping. You know, it'd be an interesting study to which, which is the most effective as far as as, as the healing process, to, to let it all out the way they're doing or to sort of hold it in when, as we do here. But nonetheless, um, there, there, this is going on. This is the reason that there's a whole bunch of people there mourning because they were professionals. Jeremiah actually puts, says this about them. Consider and call for the mourning women to come. Uh, send for the skillful women to come. So they're, again, this is what they do. They are, are the mourners. And I'm sure they're not any too happy that Jesus threw them out. You know, and, and it's what he says next that really gets to them. Um, he says, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. Now, I, I wish I had time to go into that. Um, there's... <clears throat> there's a, an awful lot of people. They actually started back in the Enlightenment. Again, we'll probably get to this a little bit in the after church as well, where they began to de-supernaturalize the Bible. And anytime there was something that Jesus said like this, they said, aha, look, she actually wasn't dead. So he didn't raise anyone from the dead. She was actually just swooned and was sleeping. And Jesus was more astute than the rest of them. And so he knew that she wasn't dead yet. Well, that's not the way Jesus is using this at all. He's using it as a metaphor for physical death. 
uh, again, the parallel with, with uh, Lazarus. Jesus waited until he heard that Lazarus was dead and he told his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Let's go wake him. All right. He uses that as a metaphor for physical death. Paul uses it elsewhere in the New Testament. And, and the, the reason they use that as a metaphor is to emphasize something that at least the Sadducees didn't believe in those that day, that there was any resurrection at all. I mean, to them, when you're dead, you're dead. And so to use a metaphor of sleeping was in, in, in that way to point out that, well, this life is not all there is. I mean, you may in this physical life, but there is another life after this. And depending on what you do in this life, it will be either judgment in hell or, or, or paradise in heaven. And so Jesus uses that metaphor for a very good reason. But anyway, he, he says that I'm, I'm going to take care of this. She, she's not permanently dead is basically what he's saying. And of course, we, we, we see the mourners that laugh at him in the 53rd verse. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. Notice that it doesn't say thinking that she was dead. Knowing that she was dead. It was very obvious to those people around her, around death quite a bit, a lot more than we are. Um, that this little girl was gone, that her soul had left her body and that all that was there um, was a, a corpse. But once again, very important that we see the picture that we have here because once again, these are all figurative as well as historical. And so in, in, in the painting of, 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 of these three miracles that we have seen, not only do we get a graphic picture of the state that we are in, but we get a graphic picture of the world, the evil of the demons, the death of the tombs, the people in the town that wanted him to leave, the people back in, in Capernaum that are just looking for entertainment, and now the scorners and the mockers, Jesus says, I have the power and inclination to save you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if you will open the door, I will come in and eat with you and, 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 and save you and bring you into my presence. And the mockers and the scorners say, no way. I mean, you're not going to believe in that fairy tale. You're not going to believe that Jesus has the ability to save you. You don't need saving. Death is perfectly good. Let's Stay where we are. So it's a very important picture that we're getting in this sort of full-orbed gospel that Luke has been uh, 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 um, mapping out for us. But then comes the time that Jesus just turns whatever mocking they're doing on its head because he is going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. And the language is so important. So look here at this 54th verse. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. First of all, just notice the body language. Um, Jairus had hoped that Jesus would come and lay his hands on the girl. But like he did with Peter's mother-in-law, rather than just laying his hands on the girl, he reaches down and takes her tenderly by the hand to help the process of rising up. He calls to her so that she will arise. I love the way that Mark puts this. 
Um, he, he uses the, um, uh, the, the Aramaic rather than just the Greek. I mean, Luke is writing in Greek to Gentiles mainly and Mark to both. But he uses the Aramaic when he says, Talitha kumi, uh, in little one, little child, arise. Now, the language that he uses, the call, he called to her. Dr. Sproul points out that this is representative of what theologians call the effectual call of God. Effectual because it is just that. It is effectual. It is a call. But you can look at it two different ways. You can look at it as both a command and as a call. As a command, Jesus is doing at this moment exactly what he did when he calmed the winds and the waves. He rebuked the winds and the waves. The same thing that he did when he cast the demons out of the gathering demoniac. He rebuked them. He's rebuking death. He is showing his power and authority over death and his ability to bring life. But then he calls out of darkness into his marvelous light this little girl who was dead. And, and, and I just want you to see that usually theologians, when they talk about an effectual call, they're talking about the regeneration of the soul, to take the soul, the heart of stone away and replace it with a heart of flesh capable of loving God with a desire to follow in his commandments. There is that, 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 that new heart, that new regeneration, but it also refers to in a broader sense, God's um, decorative will, uh, that which he declares, his divine imperative. When God calls, things happen. Brothers and sisters, God called the universe into being. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. He called it in, out, of, out of a broad expanse and it existed. When God calls, that universe responds. Now the universe has absolutely no ability on its own to create itself because that would go against the law of non-contradiction. Something cannot be not created and created at the same time in the same relationship. And so it is God who called the universe into existence. When Jesus stands outside of the tomb of Lazarus in those demonstrative words and he says, Lazarus, come forth. He is calling Lazarus from a four-day corruption. He's a a fourth-day man. He's gone. And yet Lazarus comes out of that. Lazarus has no ability to save himself, no ability to walk out of that tomb because he is dead and the soul has left his body four days ago. But when Jesus effectually calls they, 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 they come forth. And that's exactly what he is doing with this little girl. He, he is calling her out of darkness, calling her out of death, effectually and completely to bring her into his marvelous light. And I want you to see something else about the effectual call of God. That it's not a suggestion. <laughs> it's not an invitation It's not a hope. It's not a, I sure would like for you to come out. No, it it, it is effectual. 
It means that when God calls something into existence, it, it comes into existence. The universe could not possibly, it's ludicrous to think that the universe could have said to God when God said, come forth, let there be light, to say, no, actually, we, we enjoy being non-created, you know? We're not going to come out. We're going to stay a non-created universe, and we're going to reject your effectual call. Your divine imperative is something we're just going to act like it's not there. That doesn't happen. Can you imagine Lazarus when Jesus stands outside the tomb and he, in the divine imperative, says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus says, I don't think so, Jesus. Boy, I tell you what, it is nice and cool and quiet in this tomb and it's scary and hot out there. I think I'm just going to stay in here. So thank you very much for the effectual call, but I just am going to stay where I am. It would be just as ludicrous for this little girl to not rise up. When Jesus calls, it is effectual. It happens. So brothers and sisters, let me make the bridge here real quickly between the physical and the spiritual. If you're saved, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if, if, if you have been born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus, if, if, if you're a Christian, then somewhere in your life, you received the effectual call of Christ. The Holy Spirit called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, you had no ability to do that in of yourself. You had absolutely no ability to save yourself, to give yourself righteousness, or to give yourself purity. That was all the result of Jesus' effectual call. By the same token, you have no ability to resist it. You cannot say, I'm, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I know you went to the cross and died for me, but I just think I'm going to remain in my sins. It doesn't happen. So when Jesus calls you out of darkness, <laughs> he calls you indeed. Uh, uh, Sister Stacy read earlier a passage that just states this so beautifully from 1 Peter. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this little girl is in that darkness. This little girl is dead and the light enters her and once again she lives because the one who called her out the one who is stating the divine imperative has both the power and the inclination to save. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, anyway, um, notice what happens next. And her spirit returned. I wish I had more time. I, you know, sometimes I wish that this would go on for a couple of hours like George Whitfield's did. Because there's such really rich things here. You know, her spirit was reconciled with her body. It wasn't some benign force. It wasn't just a life. It was her life. It wasn't just a spirit. It was her spirit. And so when Lazarus was called out of the tomb and his spirit reunited that decomposed body, it was regenerated and it was his spirit. He was the person that he was. When Jesus was resurrected from the grave, he was reunited with his spirit. If it ever left, probably didn't because he wasn't corrupted. But when you are resurrected, brothers and sisters, it will be your spirit and your body that is resurrected. And it will be a glorified body 
in a glorified spirit, so there will be changes, but you will be you in the resurrection. It's a, a glorious little detail that her spirit returned to her body. She got up at once. Once again, we see when Jesus heals, he heals completely. Obviously, this little girl had an illness that had made her horizontal. She had languished for a while. And so whatever it was that was causing her to die, Jesus not only gave her life back, but healed her from that. Just like Peter's mother-in-law, she got up and started serving everybody. This little girl, girl, girl gets up and starts walking around just to show that it wasn't just by a mistake. But then we read, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. Once again, these are just beautiful little tidbits of information. That, that This incredible power that has just expressed power over the winds and the waves and the evil world and, and uh, uh, illness and disease, and now death itself is concerned enough about this little girl to know that she's hungry. To know that because she was sick before she died, that she probably didn't do a lot of eating. So you need to feed her. And, and, and what this tells me is Jesus is not just interested in your salvation. He's also interested in your sanctification. He's the bread of life. And he's interested in seeing you, that, that, that little seed that's planted in the good soil, to begin to grow and to bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. He's not just interested in saving you from darkness. He's interested in you being a power for the light. And being, uh, as we said, there's work to be done. And so therefore he's interested in making sure that we have food, that we are fed, that we grow, and that we produce uh, in him. Well, um, turning to the parents in the last verse, her parents were amazed, that he, uh, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. That last statement is kind of the, um, what we call the messianic secret, but not entirely. There's more there. I don't have time to go into it. Well, Again, talk. Uh, I'm just baiting you to, to come to the after church. I'm putting all these things off. I hope you realize that. You know, I do this on purpose. You know, I, I, I give you all these interesting things, and then I say you got to come back. You know, uh, if if you're going to hear about them. But I, I, I do want to comment on what it says that his parents were amazed. That's an accurate translation, but I think it leaves something to be desired. The NIV goes a little farther and says that they were astonished. But the word actually speaks of, 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 of an intense astonishment mixed with fear. It, it literally means to be out of one's mind, to be out of one's head, to be blown away by what they have seen. And so what I think we are seeing here, and the reason, going back to what Jesus said, if you'll only believe, only believe, and your daughter will be well, I'm the one that's going to raise your daughter, you need to hold on to your faith because... That amazement, that one-to-one -one encounter with the holy is going to happen to you. And I want to see that faith grow. And hopefully, as I said, we will find out that Jairus, we don't hear about him anywhere in Scripture from this point on, um, that we'll, we'll meet him in heaven. Because this was a faith grower when he saw the holy, when he saw what Jesus could do. But let me see if I can uh, bring all this together uh, in this way. One of the great things about the gospel is that it cuts through all the confusion, all the muck of the sewer that we live in. 
all of the, uh, of the spins that, that Satan can put on what's really important in life, the gospel just cuts through it. And, and, and if you take these last three cameo healings, you talk about a full picture of the gospel. And, and what it does, and, 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 and you know this, but let me just state it in a graphic terms. It expresses, first of all, how completely powerless you and I are to save ourselves, to have righteousness or purity or salvation. Because we have no more ability to achieve our own righteousness than did that demon-possessed man living in the tombs, running around naked, screaming like a banshee. That's us. We have no ability to be righteous before a holy God with that kind of a spiritual background. We have no more ability to cure what is wrong with us, the sin that flows from us and literally sucks the life out of us than the woman with the flow of blood. She, she was hopeless. No one could fix her. She had the inclination, but absolutely no power to do it. Well, that's us in our spiritual state. And, and we have no more ability to save ourselves than this poor girl who died and, and, and she is dead physically with no ability to respond to anything. So therefore, that's our state. We are completely powerless to save ourselves, to give ourselves righteousness, to give ourselves purity, to redeem ourselves. But as we learned earlier when I read you that passage from John, we don't even have the inclination. That, that's really not what we're all about. We, we, in our fallen state, we actually like the darkness. We prefer it to the light like the townspeople. Jesus, go. We don't want you here. We prefer to have the demons in our midst. So, uh, I, I mean, I mean, the the... the, the the statement of scripture, and we can just go back into the Old Testament and read what God says at the time of Noah, and this continues right on to the day. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intentions of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. If that does not peg us, then what Jeremiah says does, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So not only do we not have the power to save ourselves, we don't have the inclination. So therefore, I would think that we can honestly say that our situation is absolutely hopeless. We desperately need someone who has both the power and the inclination to save us. If it was just the power without the inclination, it wouldn't work. If it was just the inclination without the power, it wouldn't work. But we need the one, and there's only one. There's only one someone who has both the power and the inclination to save, and that is the Son of the Lord Most High, our Savior Jesus Christ. And we've already proven it. And we've proven it right here in Luke. He has power over the winds and the waves, the elements of creation. He has powers over the demonic world, powers over Satan himself. Evil cannot stand against him. He has powers over sickness. He has powers over disease. He has power over any kind of deformity or disability that we might have. He even has power over life and death. He's the only one who, as God, has life in himself, self-existent. 
And so therefore, he has absolutely all power in heaven and earth. But what is so amazing is that he also has the inclination. He wants to heal us. He wants to save us. He loves us. And so therefore, in his sovereignty, he makes sure that those that uh, are sick, that he knows are his, that he calls them out of darkness into his marvelous light. As Luke will say in just a few verses, that the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And that is wonderful news to those who are lost and those who have been found as well. So I want to end this by actually doing something I don't do very often. I want to completely narrow my comments down to a very few people. I know most of you know the Lord. Most of you um, uh, have been born again and you've seen the work of Jesus in your heart. And so therefore, you know, people like you, they love to hear the gospel as much as someone who's never heard it before. But the, the, the particular person or persons that I, I, I want to talk to are those that the Lord has just called out of darkness. That, that he has just done what he did to this little girl. And, 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 and you know that something has been wrong, but you don't know what has just happened to you. And it's very, very confusing right at first. You, you, you've begun to realize that this world that you thought was just exactly the way that you wanted it is not only sick, but is getting sicker. And the things that used to give you pr- pleasure no longer give you pleasure anymore. And what you didn't used to believe in, you're fighting in your mind because you have this propensity to believe in it again. All of a sudden, the demons are gone. The ones who haunted your dreams, the ones who who guided you into all kinds of sinful behavior. All of a sudden, it's like somebody just swept them out of you and and they're gone. And, And that tug on your life, that flow of your life essence that is the sinfulness that leads to destruction. You felt almost as if that flow has just been plugged just been stopped in some way. And you're like that little girl. And into your spiritual darkness has come just the pinprick of life as you hear the words, my beloved child, arise. You have heard the effectual calling. And if you're like me, when you heard that calling, you've run because it scares you to death, scared me to death. And I ran in the opposite direction. I tried to get away. I tried to get right back under my rock. I tried to get out of the light like the demons wanted to get out of the light. I wanted Jesus to go away like the townspeople wanted him to go away. I wanted to mock and scorn him again the way that I used to. But I couldn't do it. And so I just ran like Jonah to the other ends of the world. Well, let me tell you something. Take it from someone who wasted 20 years of his adult life. There is nothing down that road but pain and a monumental waste of time. Because the hound of heaven will have you. You see, an effectual call is just that. It's effectual. You're not going to outrun him. You're not going to get away from him. You're not going to be able to, 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 to go back to the way that you were. There's nothing that you're going to find in your life if you don't submit except pain and conflict. And so do what we've seen these three do. 
what the demonic man did, what the woman with the flow of blood did, what Jairus, Jairus did, fall at the feet of the only one who has the power and the inclination to save you. Repent of your sins, confess them before a Lord who is willing and anxious to forgive those sins and to accept you into his presence and give your life and give yourself to the only one who can possibly have the power and the inclination to give you righteousness, to purify you, to stop the flow of blood, and to raise you from the spiritual death that you're in. And that is Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. Even the demons know that. And I pray that you will know it too. Let's pray. Our Lord, um, this is such an amazing book that you've given us. It's so amazing that you would map out the gospel so relevantly to each and every one of us this way. There's no one who can read this and put it into its perspective and not realize that we do not have the ability, the power, or the inclination to save ourselves, that only you can do it. And you do it out of your absolute sovereignty. It is in your ballpark, and we give you the glory for it. We do not take any of that glory for ourselves. But we thank you, dear Lord, that you are so explicit in Scripture, and I just pray that all of the shortcomings that my words have had in, in leading to that clear understanding, that your spirit that illuminates and clarifies will illuminate and clarify in the very minds that you want it to, to take root. We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.